Okay, y'all open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 8 and 9. Amanda Ripley is a senior writer for uh, Time Magazine, and she wrote a book called The Unthinkable, Who Survives Disaster When It Strikes and Why? It's a fascinating book. She researches disasters that are human-made and produced and those that are natural. And she's not necessarily diagramming the dynamics of disaster, but she is diagramming the dynamics of those that survive them. <laughs> and she wants to find patterns of why do people survive disasters? Uh, one thing she discovered, though, is that older people do not, do not survive disasters very well. Now, I think some of us could have figured that one out, but maybe we don't know why. Like, why do you think? Let me pose that to you. Why do you think older people do not survive disasters real well? Perhaps it's physical weakness. Perhaps it's living alone. Perhaps it's the inability to evacuate. Perhaps it's a loss of purpose in life. When your life goes on and there's more behind than front, maybe you lose purpose. Perhaps it's the loss of the fight to live. So when it really, really gets tough, and you're just like, I mean, I'll confess to you, I'm what? I'm 53. I ran a Tough mutter a couple years ago. And my heart rate got up to a rate I don't think I've ever experienced in a long time since I was a little kid. And it, but this is the thought that went through my head. This is the kind of person I am. My wife's like, oh boy. Um, I thought, you know, if I go here, this is okay. I'm okay with going on a Tough mutter. <laughs> so maybe you just like, it's okay, it's fine. You're in a disaster and it's like, fine, I can go here. What do you think it is? It's none of those reasons. You know what the reason is? The number one reason they don't survive disasters is that old people do not like change. Of course. Like when I have conversations with my dad, I'll say, now I'm going to talk to my dad. And I'm going to say, dad, you're not going to survive the next disaster. You don't like change, right? Uh, before Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, 85-year-old Patrick Turner was visited by three of his children. They, you know why they had to visit him? They begged him to leave. They called him, but he wouldn't listen to him. He was absolutely stubborn. Uh, so they came to him. They said, Dad, it's time to go. Three children showing up on his front door, and he refused to go. Why? Because his life was a life of small rituals. On Monday, every, every day at 8 a.m., he went to Mass. Every Tuesday, he played golf with his brothers. His brothers did evacuate, by the way. Uh, Every Saturday, he cleaned his house, and every Sunday, he went to the cemetery to visit his wife and spend time with his wife. He never missed a Sunday. So he told his daughter, honey, listen, I'm not leaving. I'm not going to miss Mass in the morning. Now, Turner lived in a house this house for over 30 years, and it was a strong house, and it survived many, many hurricanes, and it did survive Katrina, even five-foot waters. The walls didn't cave in, the ceiling didn't collapse, but the man in the house didn't make it, all because of his small rituals, all because he refused to change. He wouldn't change. How do people change? Can we have an honest conversation? We have like what Luther used to have, what's called a table talk. 
you pick up a topic about life and you have an honest conversation, how do we change? I mean really change. I do not mean the kind of change that you get when you pick up a book and you're excited for about two days. You've just discovered how to really parent. And that lasts for about two hours. And you realize you know nothing about parenting. How do we change? Today we find out. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. A reading from Genesis 8, 13 to 22, 9, 12 to 17, and, and 20 to 25. We'll jump around today. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the, the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike, strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, Summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Chapter 9, verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and, and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a, took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be 
to his brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated, y'all. So, Lord, we ask that you would shine on the page. Would you fill us with your spirit? Give clarity to the mind. Give realness to the heart. Uh, give us power to see and believe. And we ask this in your name. Amen. All right, nobody really likes change, do we? Do y'all like change? Uh, we have our reasons, like the loss of control. If I was to get a group of pastors in here and we were to talk about, all right, what's the number one issue that you see going on in people's life that you deal with in pastoral care, your own life, uh, your own messes, the messes of those that you minister to? You know what every pastor is going to say? It has something to do with some aspect of a loss of control. Some breakdown of someone's sense of being out of control, the fear of that, the experience of that is so devastating and it wrecks people, it wrecks lives. No one likes to change when control's at stake, right? Uh, there's also the uncertainty. When you think about things that are unknown, we're uncertain. When, it, when it's unknown, it's uncertain, and that's not a good place to be. Also, the, the fear of losing something is not a good place to be in. We think about change and you lose something, you lose someone, that's not a good place. That keeps us from changing. Also, the possibility that something bad could happen. But how about this? Also, the possibility that something good could happen. Here's what happens. Sometimes we get so used to the bad in our life, we absorb it into our world of control. And Jesus comes up to us at those times and he says, do you want to be healed? Do you really want to be healed? Other times we just don't want the change that's in view. You look at the change and you say, I just don't want it. I I'm fine with the way things are in my relationship with God. I'm fine with the way things are in my marriage. I'm fine with the way things are in our family. I'm fine with my friendships. I'm fine with the church. I'm fine with the school, the city, the country, the community. I don't, and I don't particularly want the change that you're offering. Not liking change is a pretty universal feeling. So how do people change? Then there's our whole obsession with change, right? Think about that. We're obsessed with changing in our culture, particularly in the church. In fact, the authors of Law and Gospel write about the church's fixation on habit formation, like spiritual disciplines, linear progress, moral effort, spiritual empowerment, and the feeling of being close to God. Now listen to this. They continue by saying sins like lust and greed and stinginess are not fixed by habit forming and effort which either lead, the repressed, lead to repressed tendencies or to re-manifest in stronger ways at later points in your life. Or they reinforce our obsession with being the masters of our fate, what the Bible calls pride. So in other words, the obsession with change doesn't change us. So here we have it. Some of us don't want to change. Some of us know we need to change. Some of us are given up on change. So how do we change? Do you know what the first answer is according to Genesis 8 and 9? Not by threats. Not by warnings. Not by good advice of surviving doom. You know, it took a while to build an ark that big. Look at Genesis 6-3 if you have your Bibles. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. His days shall be 120 years. 
Many scholars take that 120 years to be the time between before the flood. So there was 120 years that, that Noah is building the ark. In other words, there was plenty of time for all his nosy neighbors and all the regions to be able to take notice of this ark, to see it, to ask questions about the ark, to actually hear Noah preach about the ark. And then there's the whole weird factor about all these animals showing up. Can you imagine what that was like? All these animals just start appearing from all corners of the world. They start milling around. They're making all these noises and making all these different kinds of messes. We have a, a septic sprinkler in our yard that seems to attract the lawnmower. Especially when my son Knox drives the lawnmower. He comes into the house many, many times and is like, Dad, I, I hit it again. I try to put flags out there. I try to put stakes out there. I build rocks around it. And somehow he seems to just go right over it. Now, this particular seared sprinkle head, when it gets seared, it doesn't deliver now a nice even stream. It turns into spindle top. It is a geyser. It's like someone just tapped oil and it's blowing all over the place. And not only that, it goes about five feet high. And it's a stream about that, well, however big the, the deal is, about that big. It comes down with a loud splat. It forms this nasty river that runs through it, through our yard. Now, do you think our neighbors notice that? Over the years, we have had two anonymous notes left in our mailbox about Spindletop asking, pleading, begging me to fix it. And you know what I do when I get those notes? Just so you know, if you're the one sending those notes, I'll take an extra two weeks to fix it. <laughs> the New Testament tells us that Noah was a prophet in his generation, y'all. That means that the coming flood, the judgment, the doom, he was a prophet of it. He was warning about it. For 120 years, he was given good advice about surviving doom. And not one person was changed. Not one person in 120 years. How do people change? Well, surely the great flood's got to change somebody, right? Maybe the threats and the warnings and the good advice about surviving doom don't. But perhaps those that have been in that ark for a year with fury on the outside, safety on the inside, surely, surely one of the eight people got reached and changed. Surely Noah was changed, wasn't he? Well, let's look at Genesis 9, 20 through 21. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk and laid uncovered in his tent. First thing I want to say is this. Let's not be too hard on Noah. If you had been in that ark for a full year, you'd want a stiff drink when you got out too, Right? But here's the literal translation. He became drunk and he exposed himself. Ah, I've been to frat parties that end better than this. Right? This is not a great start to the new Adam of the new world. He is the new Adam of a new world. So what about his family? What about his sons? Now, his sons are going to populate. They're going to be fruitful and multiply. It's those sons that are going to populate the world that we live in today. 
How about them? Let's look at Genesis 9, 22 through 25. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, told his two brothers. And when Noah awoke from his wine and knew that his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. The interpretations that are happening about what's happening here range from the bizarre to the bizarre. Uh, some go for sexual voyeurism, sexual perversion. I've seen that. Others say that, well, this did happen. This was used for justification for human trafficking. This passage, slavery, in our own country. Why? Well, you see the curse that Noah gives to Canaan? Look at it. Verse 25, Cursed be Canaan, a slave of slaves shall he be to his brothers. Somehow, someone stupidly, wickedly perverts that and turns that into the justification for trafficking. Here's what's happening here. Ham is not identifying himself as a sinner. Ham's not identifying himself in the, the nakedness and the shame of his dad. If he did, he would have clothed him just like his other sons. Instead, Ham saw himself superior to his dad above his dad, above nakedness, above shame, above sin. In other words, Ham had the spirit of the Nephilim in him. Remember, that was one of the reasons why the flood came. This need to be great, this need to be important, this need to build an identity around something or someone other than God, this God complex, this I need to be a man of renown. You know that the same spirit is at work in the Tower of Babel, which we're going to see in a couple of weeks? We must make a name for ourselves. That's the spirit of Ham here. Do you realize that if we, if we see that we are sinners we cover other sinners. But when we talk bad about people, <clears throat> we're superior to them. When we gossip, when we slander, when we think, ah, we don't do stuff like that, we're not covering, we're above them. In other words, after the flood, the flood itself, nothing changed. People are still the same. People are a mess. People are still addicted to sowing fig leaves and trying to cover their spiritual nakedness and shame with their own efforts. God just in case we miss it, God is explicit about this. He says this in his word, 821. He says, look, I will never again curse the ground because of man, because he knows I'm not going to do it because for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. He is completely messed up, he's saying. Now, what people is he talking about? There's only eight people alive at this time. These are the eight people on the ark. This is Noah's family. And notice that he says from youth. That's a reference to original sin. So we're now back to Genesis 3.15, and now we're beginning to see again that sin, sin as something we're in, not something we do. 
If you and I see that sin is something we're in, we cover other sinners. If it's something we do, we're above other sinners. Unless it's a sin that you do. And then you get incredibly insecure and feel incredibly inferior to other people. The human heart has not been changed by the threats, the warnings, and the good advice before the flood. Nor has the flood itself changed it. How do people change? We're really running out of options here. Because the stuff that we have so far have looked at is usually the stuff that we look to to change us and to change others. What we're about to see, though, y'all, is incredibly rare. It's so rare, it hardly ever happens. And the phrase is found in 821. I want you to look at it. The Lord said in his heart, do you see what we're getting to do here? This is incredibly rare. We get an inside look into God's heart. God is going to tell you what's going on in his heart. Here's the point. Whatever reaches God's heart will certainly reach your heart. Whatever reaches God will reach you. And whatever that is, it is the only way people change. So what's reaching God's heart? When Noah exits the ark after a year, we're told that every creeping thing, I love this. I love the creeping thing, don't you? I think that's awesome. Spiders, roaches, creeping things, perfect. Every bird, everything that moves on the earth in 819 went out by families. You know what this means is that there were a lot of babies born on the ark. Animals were multiplying already. And so Noah as everybody else does, leaves with his family. Can you imagine what that first step must have been like? We talk about the first step on the moon, but what about the first step of Noah? The new world. <laughs> what do you do now? What would you do? I know what I'd do. I'd order takeout. What does Noah do? Look what Noah does. He builds an altar. Look at verse 20. Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now notice verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, what reached God's heart was a clean sacrifice. A spotless, perfect, pure, blameless, flawless, righteous, clothed and unashamed sacrifice. And don't miss that God smelled it. That's how close he got to it. It was so personal. And the human smell is the strongest sense a human being has. This is incredibly intimate. This is incredibly personal. And this is incredibly powerful. Because that clean sacrifice is reaching God. 
I'll never forget the time Nancy made this incredible meal. All my favorites. I like a lot of things, but I really like steak, and I really like smashed potatoes, and I really like salad with this particular dressing, and I really like a glass of wine with it all. And then more than anything, I like the mound of cookies that sit in there with a glass of milk. Except this time, I couldn't taste any of it. I had a sinus infection. Do you know that I would rather be waterboarded than go through that again? That was worse than waterboarding. It was pure torture. Smell is powerful. But do you see that the smell is pleasing? Do you know what that word pleasing means? It literally means it soothed him. It satiated him. It satisfied him. In the ancient Near East, that word pleasing is used for recreation. It's used for holiday. It's used for a vacation. In other words, God is completely satisfied. He's at rest. And if God is at rest, and soothed and satiated by a clean sacrifice. How much will you and I be? What reached God's heart? A clean sacrifice. How does a clean sacrifice reach you? How does it reach me? You know where the answer is found? It's found in what we call the rainbow, but in the text it's called the bow. Look at verse 12. God said, this is the sign of the covenant I make between me and you and every living creature that's with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and that should be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember. A clean sacrifice so richly deep so deeply reached God's heart that he hangs up his bow. And the bow here in the Hebrew is a military weapon. The bow here is an instrument of violence. The bow here is an instrument of death. The bow here is a warrior's choice weapon. And God is so reached, he hangs up the bow and it points away from the earth. You know, rainbows are incredibly fascinating, and I, I started thinking about them a lot this week. And you know what I started thinking about? You really, you know, when you take some time to do it, it's incredible some of the things you can think, although they're not very profound, but you just kind of hear them for the first time again in your head or in your heart. Do you know that um, rainbows do not happen when it's storm only? And they do not happen when it's sunny only. Rainbows happen when it's both storm and sun, justice and mercy. Years after the flood, there's another Noah that comes except this time he doesn't bring a clean sacrifice. This time this Noah is the clean sacrifice. And a storm and the sun meet and righteousness 
and justice meet love and grace because this clean sacrifice pays the penalty for sin. Storm takes the flood. Storm and then loves the sinner. Son. Has compassion on the sinner. Son. And when God when God smelled that sacrifice, he hung up his bow and pointed it at himself. There is now no more floods. Period. There is now no more condemnations. There is now no more oughts. There's now no more shouldas. There's now no more measurements. There's now no more evaluations. There's now no more courts. There's now no more trials. There's now no more laws. There is now no more accusations, period. An Episcopalian theologian writes, yes, judgments against us will persist. Just as sin persists, talking about judgments that others will make against you. People will not cover you, not all the time. You will not cover other people. You will act like Ham, and I will act like Ham. We'll do it in our marriage. It's going to happen. Yes, judgments against us will persist, just as sin persists, but the gospel pronounces that the judgments have lost their bite. The law has been defanged. The condemnation we feel is simply a feeling. It's just a feeling. No more binding than any other feeling. So we may judge others, they may judge us, we may judge ourselves, but God has gotten out of the judgment game. Unbelievable. Do you know that not only under the bow... Life under the bow is no more judgment, no more condemnations, no more trials. There's also the pressure to self-justify is gone. This is breathtaking. Jesus is your clean sacrifice. Jesus is your perfect sacrifice. Jesus is your righteousness. There's this text in Hebrews, I read it last night, and I almost like jumped out of bed. I had to grab it and look at it in the original language because I need to know the, the tenses of the verbs because it was just too profound. In Hebrews 10, 14, it says, By one offering, God has perfected you. It's perfect tense. You know what that means? Let me help you. It means it was done, it was done on the body of Jesus you are perfected. And its ongoing effects continue forever and ever and ever. And there's a Greek word that came right after it, and it said it just doesn't stop. It's continuous. It's always. And so people say forever and forever. And what that means is Jesus' clean sacrifice means that you are eternally perfected right now forever. You don't have to be a Nephilim. You don't have to try to be great. You already are. You don't have to try to justify yourself. You already are. What happens when you know you don't love God? What happens in this particular area of your life? You've got an area of your life right now that you're struggling with because you want change in. 
How are you going to change in that area? What happens when you don't? What happens when you keep struggling, struggling, struggling? The only way you're ever going to change in that area is this. Let's say it's loving God. When you and I realize that there's only one person who did love God. So let's just say it. You don't love God. You really don't. We really don't love him that well. We're not really good friends. But you're not saved and you're not justified by your love. You're saved and you're justified by someone else's love. And when you realize that someone else loved God for you, the pressure's off. Now you want to love. You want to learn to love. And if there's any love for God that's going to come your way, it's going to come because God is going to grant it to you and he's going to work it in you and he's going to do it by you realizing what life under the bow looks like. Luther wrote this in Thesis 23 of the Heidelberg. He says, the law says do this and it's never done. Grace says believe in this and everything's already done. Under the bow is mercy and grace from horizon to horizon. No condemnation, no judgments, no accusation. Life under the bow is perfection, righteousness. Right now, you're okay. From east to the west. The bow is endless freedom. When we live under the bow, it changes your life.